Hey everybody, welcome to Monday's No Object. I'm your host, Dylan Howell. This is episode number 214 of our YouTube channel and podcast, and I cannot be more excited to continue sharing with you guys personal finance topics that I think can be useful for you in your long-term financial journey. In the spirit of this week and what I've been doing thus far uh, with talking about different financial crashes, uh, we are going from way back in the you know Great Depression and Black Monday, and then you know moving a little more towards the near term yesterday with the dot com bubble. But today we are going to talk about something that is very very close uh, to all of us and something that we have all lived through, and that is the Great recession of 2007 through 2009. And uh, I think we can learn a lot from this particular recession, uh, seeing as how it is the worst recession that we've seen in our lifetimes and the worst that has happened since the Great Depression. So hopefully we can learn a lot of lessons from this, learn a little bit more about what caused it and how we uh, can safeguard ourselves from such a recession in the future. Before we get started though, if you could go down below, hit the big red subscribe button, like this video, leave me any feedback in the comments down below and I'll be sure to respond to anything you leave down there. If you're listening on Apple or Spotify podcast, be sure to subscribe and leave me a review on either one of those platforms. Follow me on social media at MNO with Dylan, and that's really good supplemental materials to all the things I'm putting out in these long form episodes on YouTube and the podcast every single day. And then if you need somebody to help you build a financial plan that's specific to you and your family's needs and keep you accountable to that plan over the long term, then I can do that. Just go to my website, www.mnowithdylan.com. Click on the work with Dylan tab and you can choose the financial coaching session type that would work best for you. And we can begin pushing towards your long term financial goals together. So look, in my lifetime, and I'm you know not uh, an old head by any means. I was born uh, in 1995. I'm 25 years old, right? Uh, in my lifetime, there have been three major bear markets. There have been three uh, major times when the stock market has dropped a lot, and these are called crashes, right? We have talked about financial crashes and stock market crashes before, but these crashes were the dot-com bubble, which we talked about yesterday, the Great Recession, which we are talking about today, and then the coronavirus pandemic, which we are just making our way out of, which we will talk about again tomorrow. And that's the first one that I've actually invested through was the coronavirus crash. Okay, But we talked about the, the dot-com bubble. Let's talk about the Great Recession. Now, uh, a lot of people are still to this day very scarred by the Great Recession. It changed the way a lot of people uh, acted. It changed the way a lot of people invested. It changed the way a lot of people dealt with their finances. And sometimes for the better, sometimes for the worse. Uh, but it absolutely changed our behavior as a society. And it changed the way we thought about our governmental institutions, which are in charge of keeping us out of this type of financial turmoil. But uh, it is nonetheless something that we need to be learning about, that we need to understand how it occurred. We need to understand what the root causes were, and then we need to understand how uh, we can keep ourselves from being uh, severely impacted by something like this ever happening again. Because if there's something you take from this week, hopefully it is that crashes are going to occur and financial crises are going to occur and recessions are going to occur. But the true question is, how are you going to set up your financial life to where it is as recession-proof as possible? How are you going to live your financial life where you don't have to worry about where your next dollar comes from, or you don't have to worry about uh, how much income you make, or you don't have to worry about paying debts because hopefully you don't have any debts, or you don't have to worry about the home that you live in being uh, foreclosed upon. You don't have to worry about things uh, if you build a strong financial foundation for yourself. So I want us to learn from these negative events so that we can better recession-proof our life, okay? 
Okay. So what can we learn from the Great Recession? Well, the Great Recession was the sharp decline of economic activity during the late 2000s, right? It's considered the most significant downturn since the Great Depression. The term Great Recession applies to both the U.S. recession, officially lasting from December 2007 to June 2009, and the ensuing global recession in 2009. So this was not just a domestic event. This wasn't just something that occurred within the United States. This was something that became worldwide because uh, the entire world economy was very entrenched in some of the things that caused uh, this very, very large recession. The economic slump began when the U.S. housing market went from boom to bust and large amounts of mortgage-backed securities, or MBSs, which we'll talk about uh, here in a little while, uh, and derivatives lost significant value. Now, this term, the Great Recession, is a play on the term the Great Depression, right? Because you can't have two Great Depressions, right? You can't say, like, Great Depression Part 2, or I guess you could, but it's all semantics, right? We're just uh, trying to put a name on it, right? This was just uh, a very, very big recession. It was a great big recession. Obviously, the Great Depression uh, occurred during the 1930s and late 1920s uh, and featured a GDP decline of more than 10% and an unemployment rate that at one point reached over 25%. We talked about that on Monday. While no explicit criteria exists to differentiate a depression from a severe recession, there's a near consensus among economists that the downturn of the late 2000s, which we call the Great Recession, uh, during which U.S. GDP declined by 0.3% in 2008, 2.8% in 2009, and unemployment briefly reached 10%, did not reach what we would call depression status, even though there is no specific criteria for that. However, the event is unquestionably the worst economic downturn in the intervening years. It is the worst economic downturn that we have seen since the Great Depression. Now, big question. What caused it? What caused the Great Recession to occur? Well, according to a 2011 report by the Financial Crisis Inquiry Commission, and if you hear me say uh, the financial crisis, that is what the Great Recession has also been called, the financial crisis, because in its nature, it was specifically financial. It was specific to uh, the financial system. Okay, so according to a 2011 report by the Financial Crisis Inquiry Commission, the Great Recession was avoidable. The appointees, which included six Democrats and four Republicans, cited several key contributing factors that they claimed led to the downturn. First, the report identified failure on the part of the government to regulate the financial industry. This failure to regulate included the Fed's inability to curb toxic mortgage lending. Right? This was a big underlying uh, factor when it came to what caused the Great Recession, and it was mortgage lending. And anybody who has never really done any study on the Great Recession or doesn't really understand what occurred, uh, one of the best things that you can do, uh, there, there's a book that I, I've read. It's called Too Big to Fail by uh, Andrew Ross Sorkin. Very, very good book uh, that goes through all of the events surrounding uh, the Great Recession. And then uh, the movie The Big Short is actually quite accurate when it comes to something that has such uh, you know high-level stars in it. It has Ryan Gosling and uh, Steve Carell, um, has uh, Christian Bale, all those big actors in that movie. Uh, and it's a it's an awesome movie, right? But it tells a story of something that actually happened. Uh, Brad Pitt's in that movie as well, but nonetheless, right? The, but that's something that you can go watch. And Too Big to Fail is a book that you can go read uh, to learn more about what went on uh, in the days leading up to 
uh, this Great Recession and uh, in the months leading up, the years leading up to this Great Recession, and then what happened when it actually occurred. But we'll jump into some of those things in today's episode, but uh, it's just limited time on the podcast, limited time on the show, but those things are a little more in-depth. Uh, it can help you to learn a bit more. So uh, this mortgage lending that was very toxic, uh, the reason that it was toxic in the first place was because mortgages were being given to people who shouldn't have gotten mortgages, right? Uh, what do you have to do to have a mortgage? You have to have uh, some proof of income, right? They talk about that all the time. They ask you for proof of income 17 times in order to make sure that you have what you have. And uh, they want to see the assets that you own and you know the balances in your bank accounts and all those types of things. Uh, they want you to have a good credit score, right? Meaning that you are credit worthy, and we've talked before about how the credit score is not the end-all be-all, but uh, if you have a bad credit score, there's a reason that you have a bad credit score. You have a bad credit score because you have proven not to be credit worthy in the past, okay? So you have to have a good credit score, all these types of things. But in 2005, 2006, 2007, there was a lot of lending going on that didn't really uh, conform to these standards of uh, proper lending, right? They weren't giving uh, mortgages just to people who had higher credit scores. They weren't giving mortgages just to people uh, who had you know the proper down payments and the proper incomes and the proper uh, you know financial situation at hand. They weren't just giving uh, mortgages to those people. They were giving mortgages to just about anyone, uh, and they had these ninja loans, right? No income, no job uh, applications, and these uh, meant that even if you didn't have income or a job then you could still get a mortgage. And this all came on the back of uh, the fact that the Bush administration wanted to uh, encourage people to buy houses. They wanted to encourage uh, people to have a home and to be homeowners and have a home to live in and to own. They, they wanted that, but there were some very negative consequences to this type uh, of policy and to this type of thing that the Bush administration was trying to do at the time. Right. So there was this toxic mortgage lending going on. Next, there were too many financial firms taking on too much risk. Okay, there's something called the shadow banking system, which is not the traditional banking, but it's banking in the shadows, right? Which included investment firms that grew to rival the depository banking system, but was not under the same scrutiny or regulation. When the shadow banking system failed, the outcome affected the flow of credit to consumers and businesses, right? So when there's this lending that's going on, especially by investment firms, uh, that are not regulated in the same way that traditional financial institutions are, uh, who are savings and loans or just you know banks, commercial banks in general, right? If they are not regulated in the same way as those commercial banks, then they can do a lot of shady things to try to create return. And they absolutely did do a lot of shady things that tried to get them return and worked for a long, long time, uh, but then over time it turned into a financial mess. Now, what happened here uh, was very tricky, but uh, at the same time, it is not too difficult to understand, right? What happened at its baseline was that uh, you had these lenders who were giving out bad loans, right? And they were giving out these bad loans that uh, would eventually be foreclosed upon or uh, would eventually not be paid in some way, shape, or form, defaulted on, whatever, right? And when these lenders were giving these loans out, uh, what would happen, and this is just this is typical among banks. Banks will do this. Uh, they would sell the loans. Okay, they don't hold on to the loans very long because they want money now, so they can lend out money and make interest on that money, right? And so they would sell this loan, and typically what they would do is they would sell it to uh, some investment bank. And what that investment bank would do is that investment bank would take a bunch of loans, 
right? And just package them all together uh, in the form of what I said earlier, the mortgage-backed securities, right? Uh, and what these mortgage-backed securities are is they're basically just debt securities, right? And debt securities are like bonds where you get paid some interest amount and you're supposed to make some fixed income over time uh, in order to you know, come up with some return from the fact that uh, these investment banks own these mortgages, right? And the return comes from the fact that you're going to pay your mortgage, right? So they take all these mortgages and they bundle them up into these mortgage-backed securities and then they sell these mortgage-backed securities to both the public and specifically uh, to other investment banks and to other uh, financial institutions around the world. Okay, so uh, this was occurring, and uh, as the individuals did not pay their mortgages, right? As these individuals who got bad loans did not pay their mortgages, then what would happen? What would happen was those specific securities would become less and less valuable. Now. That seems to be no huge problem because there are junk bonds out there and there are things that become less valuable over time and it's no big deal, right? But the problem was the underestimation of these things becoming not valuable at all, right? And a bunch of people foreclosing on their homes because people saw the mortgage as one of the safest financial instruments out there, one of the safest debt instruments that you could be putting your money in. And so when they could find that they could invest in this group of mortgages and make some type of good return over time, then that seems very attractive. But it's not very attractive if a bunch of those mortgages are going to be defaulted on or foreclosed, right? Because then you don't receive a return, right? And those mortgage-backed securities become worthless over time if they're bundled with a bunch of crappy loans, okay? So what would happen was these particular securities would be given ratings that they weren't supposed to be given. They would be given ratings uh, that said that they were, you know, likely to be paid. They had high credit ratings. There was an amount of safety that was inherent to them. Uh, that you could guarantee you were going to get your return because they were mortgages. And of course, you should get your return. But what people came to find out and what these institutions came to find out is that they were not getting paid and they were not going to get paid because people were foreclosing uh, at a record rate, right? This was a huge issue, okay? And it took a lot of time for all this to get cleaned up, but uh, it was so entrenched into so many different companies. Uh, and there were so many different companies that held these mortgages and held these mortgage-backed securities and held collateralized debt obligations where uh, they would take mortgage-backed securities that were maybe lower rated, right? Let's say, you know, B or, you know, B minus, B plus, whatever, package a bunch of those together and put those with other mortgage-backed securities and put them in what's called a collateralized debt obligation, a CDO, right? And that CDO would be given a favorable rating as far as its diversification went and its ability to pay over time. And then they didn't pay off. And so all of these different derivatives of the mortgage, all these different derivatives of the mortgage-backed security uh, ended up being uh, worthless over time or worth very little over time. And that uh, led a lot of banks and investment banks uh, and a lot of individuals into financial ruin. Okay. Now it didn't affect everybody in the same way, but uh, it had a profound effect on our economy because of how entrenched all of these mortgages were. And mortgages are such a large part uh, of people's lives, and it's the largest expense that most people have, right? So it had a big impact on the everyday individual in a real way, especially those who were given loans thinking that it would be perfectly fine and they could pay their loans and it was no big deal, but maybe they were loans with balloon payments or loans with really high interest rates or whatever it was, and they didn't quite understand what they were signing up for and ended up having to foreclose, which left 
left them in a negative financial situation that they didn't want to be in in the first place either. So uh, this is a big, big issue and caused a global financial crisis. Now, the crisis came to a head uh, when Lehman Brothers, the investment bank, when they filed bankruptcy. Uh, the country's fourth largest investment bank in September 2008 filed for bankruptcy, which is almost unheard of for an institution that large to go bankrupt. Right, The contagion of all of this uh, you know, mortgage-backed securities and CDOs and things being worthless, it all quickly spread to other economies around the world, most notably Europe. Right, As a result of the Great Recession, the United States alone had shed more than 8.7 million jobs, according to the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics, uh, causing the unemployment rate to double. Further, American households lost roughly $19 trillion of net worth as a result of the stock market plunge. According to the U.S. Department of Treasury, uh, the Great Recession's official end date was June of 2009, right? So this was the Great Recession. The Great Recession was uh, a, a profoundly difficult time in our country's history, and uh, it will be taught for a long, long time, right? And we responded uh, from the Great Recession with a ton of regulation and a ton of monetary policy to try to get the, the economy back going again. We talk about how low interest rates are today. Interest rates have been historically low since the Great Recession because interest rates had to be dropped out of uh, the Great Recession and allow the economy to build back up. And then they never got up way too high uh, before we had the coronavirus crash and uh, rates continued to stay low. And then there was a lot of fiscal policy, uh, a lot of repurchasing of bonds, what they call quantitative easing. And then the Dodd-Frank Act, which uh, it, it created a lot of regulation around banks and uh, trying to make sure that the banking system was safe uh, for more individuals in America. And then uh, the TARP plan where the government spent uh, almost $800 billion and gave it to financial institutions and individuals and all these different things. And uh, the origin of the quote-unquote stimulus check came from the Obama administration uh, when we were coming out of the Great Recession, sending out stimulus checks uh, for the first time. So many people, they didn't get their first stimulus check under the Trump administration. They got it under the Obama administration uh, many years prior. But uh, this was the Great Recession, okay? Now, what can we learn from the Great Recession? What can we take away? This is what I really want you to you know, clue into and understand a lot, is what lessons uh, can we learn from the Great Recession? Well, the first lesson is, just because you can qualify to borrow money does not mean that you should, okay? Just because uh, somebody can give you something at a certain rate does not mean that you should take it, right? A lot of people, they uh, found out that they could qualify to own a home, and so what did they do? They went and they took out loans to own a home, regardless of the interest rate, regardless of uh, the amount that they were borrowing, regardless of uh, their ability to repay, which was a huge, huge issue, the ability to repay. They didn't have an ability to repay, and yet they took out the loans anyway. And so contrary to claims about the Great Recession, right, loans that were made, right, these mortgage loans weren't just made to low-income minority borrowers. By 2007, 61% of the subprime loans, subprime meaning uh, below prime, meaning worse than prime, meaning that these people are getting higher interest rates on their loans, right? 61% uh, of subprime loans packaged by Wall Street were to borrowers with good credit scores, right? A comprehensive analysis of more than 2.5 trillion in subprime loans found that as housing booms peaked, 
right? The mortgage bonanza reached every racial and ethnic group, income level, and geographic area. But again, this is bad lending. This is lending to anyone in any place and lending in a way that even if they had a good credit score, they didn't have the ability to repay for the amount that they had lent out. So uh, that is a big deal. And that's what caused that housing bubble uh, to burst. And we talked about bubbles and exactly what they were in yesterday's episode. And you can go check that out. Now, the second thing that we can learn uh, from the Great Recession is that a house is primarily a place to live. Okay, if you saw yours as an ATM during the housing boom, you certainly weren't alone. Okay, people with good credit scores opted to refinance with subprime loans in order to take more cash out of their houses than a conventional mortgage would permit. A lot of borrowers also counted on their homes to pay for their kids' college. True subprime mortgages carried much higher interest rates, but not right away. Many had low teaser rates, and this was a big thing too. A lot of these banks and financial institutions were giving out teaser rates uh, to their borrowers, meaning that they would give you these lower rates for a short period of time, but then those rates would jump uh, at some time in the future, right? So they were given these teaser rates or required no initial payments at all, and borrowers figured they refinance again before the monthly payments skyrocketed and might even eventually sell the house at a big profit uh, in order to pay for their retirement. This was a pipe dream. As the recession made painfully clear, you can't count on your home to be worth more than what you paid for it when you're ready to sell it, okay? Uh, this is why we try to get our house paid off. Okay, we want our house to be paid off as a part of the financial action plan because even your house, even something that seems so safe and so uh, benign, it can hurt you, right? If you make bad decisions about it, if you're taking equity out of it, if you're taking uh, out a second mortgage or refinancing or whatever, uh, you can run into issues when it comes to uh, your home. And easy money typically turns into a bubble and easy money typically turns into a crash eventually, okay? So your house should be viewed as a place that you live and not someplace where you can take money out. You don't need to pay for your kids' college out of your home. You don't need to pay for your retirement out of your home. You need to pay for those things by investing in the way that I call you to do so uh, in the financial action plan. So a house is primarily a place to live and it is not an ATM. Now, the third lesson that we can learn from the Great Recession is that stock prices can keep falling for a very long time, okay? Uh, the painful fact of life is all too easily forgotten. In a bull market, the smart investor's mantra is buy on the dips. That is buy when prices fall because they won't stay down long. In bear markets, they do, right? In bear markets, prices do stay down for a long period of time. So buying the dips becomes all the more real. Between October 2007 and March 2009, stocks plunged 57% down a seemingly bottomless hole, right? The, the stock market fell for a year and a half. Okay, it did not have any type of legitimate correction for a year and a half. That is a long time to feel the pain, right? You're talking about a 57% plunge in a year and a half, right? If that were to occur today, I mean, people would go crazy. I mean, even the coronavirus crash happened very, very fast, right? Stocks dropped fast and they recovered fast, right? But during the Great Recession, it was just a constant drip and a constant dip of stock prices, lower and lower and lower and lower. 12 years of gains disappeared in 17 months, uh, which is just absolutely outrageous. Now, uh, you could say during the coronavirus crash, a lot of gains were raised very quickly, but they came back very quickly as well. The big challenge in such a market is resisting the overwhelming impulse to join the stampede for the exit. Right? History has repeatedly shown that sitting tight is the key to successful stock market investing. Okay, so I told you before, there's three things you can do when markets crash. You can either sell 
right? You can just sit on your hands or you can buy more. And that goes from worst to best option because if you sell, right, you lock in your losses and you won't likely be a part of the upside or at least all of the upside and you'll miss out on gains. So we don't want to sell. If you hold and you just sit on your hands, that's fine, right? And you'll ride the roller coaster to the other side and I'm perfectly fine with that. But if you're buying more, then you'll be able to make more returns on your money. Uh, and even though the market's low and you're feeling the pain, be fearful when others are greedy and greedy when others are fearful. And that's exactly what you should do. If you sell as many people did in 2008, you lock in your losses, that's a disaster. And the older you are, the less time you have to rebuild your savings. A bear market is easier to endure if I know how much pain I'm willing to face. As a rule of thumb, assume that your stocks and stock funds can drop 50% overnight and stay down for a very long time. This is uh, a very good exercise, right? Pretend that your stock funds fell 50%. How would you act? Or that your stocks fell 50%. How would you act? Right? If you can't stand to see your total savings fall by more than 25%, which last year we saw it fall by more than 25%, right? you should invest no more than 50% of your portfolio in stocks. I believe that wholeheartedly. And especially if you don't understand what you're investing in. I've talked about this all the time. Know what you own. Understand what you're investing in and then invest. Do not invest until you understand. But understand this, this lesson, stock prices can keep falling for a long time. Be a net buyer. Do not be a seller when stock prices fall. Then the fourth lesson we can learn from the Great Recession is that you can't avoid risk by avoiding the stock market. Like everything else in life, investing involves trade-offs. With stocks, you lose money when the market falls, but thinking only about that risk is like looking only one way when you cross the street. Look the other way and you'll see that with bonds, you risk losing purchasing power to inflation, right? Because especially now, bonds have very, very low yields uh, relative to history, okay? The best solution is divide your money uh, into the asset allocation that you want, right? You need stocks because you can grow your money to keep pace with the cost of living, right? A healthy 65-year-old man today can expect to live into his 80s, so you need to be able to continue to grow your money over time. But you will not be able to completely avoid risk. And if you do want to avoid risk, guess what? You're actually going to take on risk. There is risk to avoiding risk. Now, what do I mean? When you look at the risk of the stock market, and you say, okay, well, I don't want to be a part of the stock market or the bond market or the crypto market or any other market. I just want to put my money in savings. And you think that's no risk, right? Well, that's absolute risk because what's guaranteed to happen if you put your money in a savings account is that your money is going to be devalued systematically over time. That money is going to become worth less and less and less over time. But if you put money in the stock market, historically, your money has become worth more and more and more over time, right? So just in trying to avoid risk, you're not going to be able to avoid all the risk. And a lot of people thought that coming out of the Great Recession, like, man, I'm just going to put all my money in cash and it's, it's not worth it. It's not worth you know investing. It really deterred a generation of investors. But if they would have just taken advantage of the early days of that long bull market that we just got to the end of uh, in last year, and some people say we're still a part of that bull market and we haven't you know, begun a new one. But uh, if you just take that, right, those early days and you invested a lot in those early days, you would have made a lot of money. So you can't avoid risk by avoiding the stock market. Then the fifth and the last lesson that you can learn uh, from the Great Recession or the last lesson I have for you today is that your income is your greatest asset. It's much harder to survive a major downturn without a paycheck. Even a part-time job at minimum wage can be a lifesaver, right? If it helps you to cover your basic living expenses or whatever, right? This is why I tell you to have an emergency fund in place. So if you lose your job, you can be able to keep yourself afloat for some time, 
right? Don't retire until you're confident that you could pay for your essential expenses and that you could do the things that you wanted to do and, and not eat into the principal that you've saved, right? You need to keep that income and allow that income to work for you over time. Invest it, grow it. The surest way to achieve this goal is just to work hard, right? And it may be to get multiple income streams. And I've talked to you before about how you don't necessarily have to have multiple income streams, but especially if you feel like whatever job you have uh, could be at stake during some type of recession, it's okay to have some side hustle and build up some extra money or have some extra emergency fund or invest some more money uh, for, you know, some time down the road where you want to do X, Y, or Z or whatever, right? Uh, but your income is going to help get you there. And if you lose your income, then things can be very painful. And that's what we learned from the Great Recession because so many people did lose their income. So many people did lose a job for some considerable amount of time. And in doing so, uh, it brought the American economy to its needs for some time. So um, you have to understand these things. You have to learn these lessons, know these lessons up front, and then you'll be able to better make decisions uh, to strengthen your financial life, strengthen your financial foundation, and become a better manager of the money that you've been given over time, okay? I want you guys to be good money managers. I want you to learn from the past, and I want you to be able to take what you learned from the past and apply it to the future. Because, like I said yesterday, history repeats itself, right? And it doesn't repeat itself perfectly, but it repeats itself in a rhyming way. Meaning that, like, you know, you may have two words that, you know, they aren't the exact same word, but they rhyme, right? So they sound a lot the same. So the dot-com bubble may look a lot like the crypto craze, right? Well, they're not the same, but they rhyme, right? They, they have similarities, and that's what's going to happen time and time again. So learn from the past, and you'll be better equipped to deal with the future and be uh, the best financial manager that you can be for yourself and your family. And you'll be able to grow your money and be very confident in the moves that you make financially. And hopefully, my financial action plan can help you to do that. And if you don't know much about that, you can go check that out uh, in one of the playlists that I have uh, set up that is labeled financial action plan. And you can learn more about the plan that I've set up to help you manage your money in an effective way over time. And then you'll be able to have uh, financial balance. You'll be able to give, save, and spend in varying proportions and be able to live the life that you've always wanted to live. And that's what I hope for you guys uh, as I teach you every single day here on this show. So thanks for watching this episode. If you could go down below, hit the big red subscribe button, like this video, leave me any feedback in the comments down below, and I'll be sure to respond to anything you leave down there. If you're listening on Apple or Spotify podcast, be sure to subscribe and leave me a review on either one of those platforms. Follow me on social media at MNO with Dylan, and that's really good supplemental materials to all the things I'm putting out in these long form episodes on YouTube and the podcast every single day. And then if you need somebody to help you to build a financial plan that's specific to you and your family's needs, then I can help you to do that. Just go to my website, with dylan.com click on the work with dylan tab and you can choose the financial coaching session type that would work best for you and we can begin pushing towards your long-term financial goals together tune in tomorrow as i talk about the coronavirus crash and the lessons that we can learn from what has happened in our recent past so thanks for tuning into this episode of money's no object i'm your host dylan howell god bless